todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Debbie Kruger, author of Songwriters Speak, a book about Australia's most popular and important songwriters. Her interviewees include members of the Little River Band, Split Ends, Midnight Oil, and In Excess, to name a few. Debbie is a friend of mine who I met completely by chance when we were both lost on the Sony Pictures lot looking for a screening room. We made it just in the nick of time to see a sneak peek of the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, so we bonded over our love of Queen and learned that we have a lot in common. So we've been friends ever since. And I learned so much from reading her book. And I have a lot of questions. So let's get her on the line. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to the show. Oh, Stacy, thank you for having me. I'm very, um, I'm very honored. I appreciate the invitation. Well, uh, you're such an interesting person to talk to uh, just on an everyday basis. So now I get to share you with my listeners. And because you have Songwriter Speak that's just been uh, reintroduced to the world. And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I had never heard of several of the songwriters in your book. But <laughs> kind of in a way, it's a good thing because you introduced me to new to me music. Um, but with that in mind, who is the intended audience for reading Songwriters Speak? Look, I think it's anybody that really likes in-depth stories about music and who appreciates, understands and appreciates that the music begins with the songwriter and the composer. Um, in any creative pursuit where words and music or, you know, art are involved, it's, it's about the writing. So um, when I first came up with the idea for this, it was because I had read this very inspiring and influential book that's very well known amongst music people here in America, Paul Zollo's Songwriters on Songwriting. And he had one volume, the original volume out at the time, and I devoured it. I read it from chapter one through chapter something. And when I first met him, he was amazed that I had read it 
you know, chronologically or sequentially. Um, because these sorts of books of anthologies of interviews, tend, people tend to dip in and out. Oh, there's Nick Cave. I'm a Nick Cave fan. Or there's Neil Finn. I'll read that first. But I was interested in studying songwriting, you know, thoroughly. So I read his book that way. And so I, when I decided that there needed to be a volume of this kind about Australian and New Zealand songwriters, I wanted to do it in a chronological way where it started with, you know, a songwriter from earlier times and went through to the most recent one at the time I was writing. There wasn't a book like it in America, in Australia, apologies. I'm in America as I speak to you. Um, and a lot of the coverage of rock, pop, country music in Australia and New Zealand at the time was very focused on performance, appearance, pop and, and rock stardom as opposed to the creative side of it. Um, back then, you know, earlier on in this century and millennium, music documentaries weren't as prevalent. So, you know, other than, say, VH1's Behind the Music, which, again, focused on stardom as opposed to the more intellectual pursuit of creativity behind it. So I've always been a bit of a completist, very thorough, and it just seemed to me that a volume like this was needed. Um I didn't really focus so much on the market for it or the audience other than in my book proposal where you have to describe what the market is more than what I just perceived to be a need for it to be done and not wanting anyone else to do it. Well, this is a reissue from an earlier release, and I know the book went through quite a journey, sometimes took some tragic turns. So can you tell us a little backstory on that? Well, yeah, it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't easy to find the right publisher even back then because it wasn't a superficial rock star type biography. It was a book of interviews and I wanted to do most of the interviews specifically for the book. It's not like I already had 40 existing interviews and just wanted to bundle them up. Right. Um, I needed a publishing deal to go ahead with, them being able to contact some of the most um, uh, hard-to-get songwriters to legitimise my approach to them. So I found a great publisher and it, it came out and it was great. It did really nicely. It got great attention in Australia. Back then, Amazon didn't exist in Australia. You couldn't easily make a book available internationally unless you did it through a personal website. So I did that. And I was selling the book directly, you know, I was like my own mini shipping company and I was <laughs> wow. signing and packaging up and shipping books to Savage Garden fans around Europe and America or Midnight Oil fans or Nick Cave fans or In Excess fans. Um, they're probably the bands I can think and artists I can think of off the top of my head that had already wide universal, you know, uh, international, sorry, followings. Um, and uh, but then, yes, to talk about tragedy, if you like, um, a couple of years after the book came out, my publishers, who were very beautiful, uh, two beautiful women who really believed in it, 
they just decided they wanted to part ways, close down the company and do other things with their lives and careers. And I was offered the opportunity for another publisher to buy the remaining copies of the book, which at the time was only about 500, but in a small market like Australia, that would have kept it going for a while. And um, they shared the same distributor. It was actually Music Sales, who is international, um, but they're Australian division. And they they purchased the remaining copies, but the distributor uh, accidentally pulped those copies because the other Limelight Press, my publisher's uh, titles, weren't resold to anyone else and they were all piled up to be pulped. And so the distributor pulped mine as well. Oh, and gosh. it took a while for my literary agent to get the compensation for me. Um, and then the book was out of print. And it was really sad. And the thing is that because the people who bought the book liked it, there weren't that many that you could buy on resale. So whenever one would show up on eBay or Amazon, I would try and grab it. Oh, and, wow. and then I would be giving them away. Like when I moved to LA. Um, I would give away my book as a calling card to try and impress people. <laughs> All that did was deplete my stock. Right. So um, a lot of people urged me to turn it into an ebook, and I don't know why. I just found it a little bit of a mind bend for me to figure out how to do it. And, and then everybody started self-publishing on different online platforms. And so uh, a, a friend and colleague of mine back in Sydney who has a very sweet um, boutique publishing label said, look, I can do this. I can get this out for you again. And that's where it went. That's how it, it came back. And I'm really excited by, by the response that people are interested and that we've come to a point where there are quite a lot of songwriters in here that are known worldwide and because we're losing great talent, there's um, people like me who love music, you know, more classic rock and pop, are interested in those um, connections between artists and are willing to find out about other songwriters whom they might not have known of but who they realise there are connections to through the music they already love. So, for instance, if you know and like the original Little River Band songs, you might look in this book and realise that there are other Australian songwriters that are connected to those guys that are worth knowing about. And um, and then and then somebody, say, in the United States might be surprised that they actually do know the work of songwriters whose names they weren't familiar with. Exactly. So, um, yeah. When I was yeah. reading the book, I was, you know, going to YouTube on my phone, like throughout it and and listening to some of the songs that you were talking about. And it's really, it's a great um, historical journey. Oh, great. I'm so glad you do that. I love how thorough you are. It's one of the reasons why you and I connected. <laughs> and, you know, at the time the book came out in 2005, um, a major independent record company in Australia, Festival Mushroom, um, put out a double CD to go with the book, to be sold oh, okay. separately. And I was allowed to choose the tracks and sequences. Um, the only songwriting act from my book that refused uh, to license the song for the book 
was Midnight Oil because they just have a policy that none of their songs go on outside compilations, regardless of their merit. The guys that I interviewed for the book, Jim Maginni and Rob Hurst, are friends to this day of mine. They're they're very supportive of me, but it's just a policy. Um, And um, for Terry Britton, I... I couldn't get permission. We couldn't get permission for What's Love Got to Do With It from the record company in Australia. So we put on De- uh, Devil Woman, Cliff Richard's song. But then um, I met, met Roger Davies, who managed Tina Turner and who was a famous Australian, is a famous Australian artist manager, and told him that story. And he went, oh, God, I wish you'd just come to me. We would have loved to have Tina on this. So it's kind of it's interesting, you know. And Terry Britton, um, who I know you're you're quite interested in, he's a British-born Australian musician, you know, because there was a huge wave of immigration from the from the United Kingdom to Australia in the fifties and sixties. Um, who was a member of one of Australia's pioneering pop groups, the Twilights. Um, who then moved back to the UK, as as some did, and went on to become this, you know, incredibly internationally acclaimed, award-winning songwriter and producer. Um, and that's that's one of the things I, I'm particular about with the book is that the theme was uh, songwriters whose careers had begun, begun in Australia and New Zealand, but they're not all you know, living there in Australia their whole lives. They, they're very international, a lot of them. Right. So, I mean, that's the backstory on the book, but um, I want to know a little bit about your backstory too and what made you fall in love with music in the first place and want to make it your vocation to write about it. I guess that what made me fall in love with music was Top 40 Radio. Just growing up listening to Top 40 Radio as a kid, and I was obsessed with it and I would learn the songs and I would, you know, lip sync to songs with a a piece of uh, a ball of what you here would call aluminum foil and what we would call aluminium. Um, and I would roll it up into a ball so that it looked like the head of a microphone and I would stick it on a pen or a pencil and I would <laughs> stand in front of my mirror and I would mime lip sync to tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And um, I was just obsessed with pop music. It, you know, I'd like to, you know, a lot of people grow up being inspired by their parents. And certainly my dad played music in the house. He was into kind of Sergio Mendes and, and Brazil 66 and, and uh, Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway and that kind of thing. But I developed my love for pop music and rock music through listening to radio, becoming a very, very active radio listener. You know, I'd bring the DJs all the time to talk about the music with them. Um, and uh, and then you would buy, and I, I think it was the same in America, you'd buy these KTEL record collections, you know, 20 yeah. greatest hits, 20 mm-hmm. greatest stars, and they'd sometimes be truncated versions of the songs to fit onto one side of vinyl but that's how I kind of started building a record collection. And I've told the story in, in the preface, the original um, preface to my book, that the first Australian pop song that just grabbed me 
was a song called Cassandra by a huge pop group of the 70s in Australia called Sherbet, who Roger Davies, who I mentioned before in relation to Tina Turner, was the manager of. That's how he started his management career, managing Sherbet. And Cassandra is a beautiful song. It's still considered to be one of the one of their greatest works. And it was on Rock Explosion from 1973, a KTEL collection, and on the radio. And I just thought, oh, okay, this is Australian. That's different to American and, and British pop. And I just, you know, I was one of those kids that read the liner notes and took notice of who wrote songs and who produced songs and albums and started buying albums. My first album by an artist was Bowie Pinup. So, you know, I started high. Yeah, um, <laughs> no kidding. Which, which interesting to connect to this conversation included because it was a song of covers of songs that Bowie had been inspired by included Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats mm. written by Harry Vander and George Young who are one of the key chapters of my book because they are still considered probably the greatest songwriting partnership that Australia ever produced um, you know Scottish and Dutch immigrant who came to Australia as kids and formed the Easy Beats. And, um, of course, George Young's little brothers ended up forming ACDC. So they're such key members of Australian music history. But the Easy Beats went straight back to the UK when mm. they became big and famous. And then Vander and Young went on and wrote big hits for people like John Paul Young, like Lovers in the Air, which is internationally famous. Um, so... That's what I love about music is that, and the way my mind thinks, and I know the way your mind thinks, is the way that the the storylines and the threads connect dis seemingly disparate artists or stories and, and songs and bring it all together into one big cohesive story that you can tell about music. Yeah, I mean, Not well, there I, is a lot I'll of... I'll long um, answers, I know. <laughs> no, that's, I like it. Um, there is a lot of historical and observational context and a lot of your writing, which is great. It's not just a straight Q&A throughout. Um, but how long did it take for you to find the right approach? And was it always easy to carry through with each subject? Look, I decided on that approach based on what Paul Zolo, such a great interviewer, had done with his book, Songwriters on Songwriting. I loved how he would write an introduction to set, to, to give the historical background, but set the context for the interview. Um, so that was a given that I would do that. And I, I argued fervently for the Q&A format because there was one publisher, a more major book publisher in Australia that were interested, but they wanted narrative chapters. They wanted it to be in my voice because they liked the way I wrote, which is great, but that wasn't the point. The point of a Q&A is that you are a fly on the wall. And sure, they're cleaned up and they're edited down because otherwise, you know, some of these interviews were six hours long. Otherwise, they're just <laughs> rambling, endless, indulgent pieces. Um, but it was really vital that they remained as Q&As and that the reader could feel like they were sitting in on a conversation and also not only be fascinated by what the responses were and how each subject responded to the questions, but also my questioning is part of 
the art of this book is right. how do I get these answers out of people? How do I gain their trust? And when is it pertinent to ask a long, detailed question? And when is it pertinent to ask a very, very quick question and just get the the first thing that comes off out of their mouth or off the top of their mind? And that's an art, the art of the interview. Exactly. Um, now, did the subjects, did some of them want to read the text before publication or did you offer that? I mean, how does that work? So that was that's really interesting. Look, a few did, and one in particular um, was a real pain in pain in the ass about it, and held on to, <laughs> held on to his chapter for eight long months, keeping oh me gosh. waiting. Um, and and somebody who really didn't need to, because um, he knew I was a friend and a fan already, and would not have done anything to make him look bad. Um, there were a couple of others, and sometimes that was, in one case, it was because his partner at the time was also his manager, and she was just asserting her control over the situation more, you know, and in fact, it all came up because every interviewer needed to sign a release form. And so I would offer the release form at the end of the interview, and there were a few that said, look, let me, let me, you know, send it to me, and then I'll do it. Um that particular one whose female manager partner was holding things up, um, he ended up being so embarrassed about it, he just secretly signed the form and sent it to me anyway. <laughs> um, but there were some that I was sure would and that would make it difficult um, only because of my preconceived ideas about how difficult they might be, Nick Cave being one, the two guys from Midnight Oil that I mentioned before. They loved the interviews and they just signed off without hesitation. They trusted me. Um, so the ones that did, just a handful, I just worked around that. I was, I was, you know, I was doing 40 chapters, 45 songwriters into 40 chapters because a few of the chapters were two songwriters per chapter. And um, I did it over a few years. So, you know, while I was waiting for one, I was busy interviewing others and editing chapters down and so on. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that. Having made the Ventures documentary, sometimes it was really difficult to get people to just sign a release. And obviously, I'm not going to be using that interview for anything else. All they're talking about is the Ventures, but some of them were rather meticulous. Maybe they'd been burned before in the business. I don't know. But um well, as I was reading your book, I realized that even though I hadn't recognized some of the songwriters' names, I knew their songs. Um, so what are some of the iconic and classic songs that you covered here? And what are some of your favorites aside from what you mentioned already? Well, Friday on My Mind is probably considered to be the greatest or the most popular Australian song ever written. And in fact, 22 years ago when I was the head of communications for APRA, which APRA AMCOS, which is like ASCAP or BMI, the, um, the Copyright Collection Society for Songwriters, Composers and Music Publishers, publishers in Australia and New Zealand, we put together a list of the 10 best Australian songs as voted by a, a group of people to help promote APRA's 75th anniversary. And Friday on my mind was hands down the number one. There was never any doubt that it would be. 
Um, so, but the thing about Harry Vander and George Young is that they were always very modest and self-effacing and um, for them, writing songs was work and they didn't really put that much, uh, you know, deep soul-searching into their songwriting. It was what sounds good, what feels good, you know, how do the words work. My favourite Australian song of all time is a song called Evie and it's a three-part suite of songs, Evie parts one, two and three. It goes for 11 minutes. It went to number one in Australia, which makes it the longest song to ever hit number one on a chart. Wow. It's longer than it's much longer than Bohemian Rhapsody, for instance, and um, and it's amazing. And the singer of it, uh, the recording artist who recorded it, Stevie Wright, had been the lead singer of the Easy Beat, so they were working with him anyway. It it's monumental. So if you didn't YouTube that, <laughs> I you, didn't. I'll have to do that. YouTube Stevie Wright performing Evie parts one, two, and three at the concert of the decade on the steps of the Sydney Opera House on November 4th, 1979. And, um, or any other version of the song, the original recorded version is great too. Um, so that's that's a very iconic song. Um, there's a great song, I don't know if you came across, called The Real Thing, recorded by Russell Morris, who is a songwriter interviewed in my book, but he didn't write it. It was written by a guy called Johnny Young. And Johnny Young was a songwriter and performer in his own right who went on to host a talent show called Young Talent Time, which um, discovered a lot of amazing talent in Australia. And it was my ambition to, to be a contestant on Young Talent Time and sing High Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree. But, of course, I, I, I never Classic. did. I never did. But that was, you know, one of my little, middle, little childhood dreams. Um, Johnny Young wrote The Real Thing, and there's there's a great story about how The Real Thing was written, how it ended up being recorded, how it was produced, because the guy who produced it, a guy called Ian Meldrum, whose nickname is Molly, so he's Ian Molly Meldrum, he's a legend in his own right in Australia. He was the host of a long-running pop music show called Countdown, um, which was like the Australian equivalent of Top of the Pops, for instance. Um, and... There are so many different people in the book who had some part to play in that song because even though they were songwriters in their own right, they played guitar on that song or they played something else on that song. And that's and the real thing is is an amazing song. Um, oh, gosh, there's so many. I mean, there's a, a huge, there's a big music doc on in Australia at the moment about John Farnham, who's probably Australia's most loved and most successful male vocalist. And he'd been a big star in the 60s. He took over as lead singer for Little River Band in the 80s for a few years and then um, relaunched himself as a solo star in his late 30s and became bigger than Ben Hur. And um, the song that broke him out again was called You're the Voice, which was not written by Australians, but his second big solo album of that time, Age of Reason, the title song of that was written by this married couple, Todd Hunter and Joanna Piggott. Todd was and it still is in a famous band called Dragon um, and they wrote Age of Reason and it changed their lives even though they were already successful 
because Farnham was and is just so huge. And so there are songs like that dotted through the book that have are kind of larger than life songs that have lives of their own and then getting into the stories behind them is fascinating. And that's why what, one of the things I love about what my publisher, my original publishers, Limelight Press, did with this book was that they not only had a regular index, they had a song index. And yeah. so you can say, okay, Age of Reason, and then you can see how often it's mentioned or the real thing, how often it's mentioned across so many different chapters because somebody else had a part to play in that. Um, were there any songs that you... Well, I guess I guess something like What's Love Got to Do With It, you know, particularly as we've just lost Tina Turner. I know. And- I was just actually at the supermarket earlier today and a couple of the checkers like burst into that song. It was kind of crazy. It's like it's that been on song my touches mind. people all over the world. Yeah, it's been on my mind a lot since Tina died. And because my interview with Terry Britton was so wonderful and he's such a charming, charming gentleman and said, you know, I don't even think of myself as a real songwriter. And I'm like, you're showing me your Grammy and your Ivan Novello. You know, Ivan Novello is the top songwriting award that you can get in the in in the United Kingdom. And you're showing me your shelf of awards for songwriting. And you're saying you're not really a songwriter. I love that. You know, that's about as 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 modest as you can get. But the story that he tells in his interview about, you know, Tina wanted this comeback but she was not necessarily comfortable with certain types of songs that required her to sing more quietly and more intimately um she was used to belting them out that's what Ike had belted her into doing basically (laughs) so um the way that Terry as his as her producer and songwriter encouraged her to do it is is just a wonderful story that you get more detail about in this in this book. Well, I'm a big fan of Nick Cave, as I'm sure a lot of people who read your book are. They see his name and it's like, oh, yes, I have to read this. Um, I loved his Murder Ballads album with the Bad Seeds. And you do have him in the book. And I was kind of surprised when I read your intro. It's like, oh, I wasn't really familiar with a lot of his songs and his music. And he's kind of known for being a bit irascible with journalists. So um, tell me a little bit about how that interview came together. And I understand you were there for a long time and he wasn't even holding you hostage. No, that was actually in my very top handful, top four or five interviews in the book, but the whole experience of it. And, yeah, I did. I famously opened that chapter with, uh, you know, Nick Cave is a is a spiritual man, so I thought I would uh, open with a confession. And I said I was a Nick Cave virgin. Had no idea, hadn't listened to your music at all. I studied you for this interview. And I studied several of the artists for the interview. And um, he was impressed by that. Um, I knew that even though I had not been a Nick Cave fan I wasn't knowledgeable and I'd probably avoided him because I saw him as this dark kind of sinister figure in music um not necessarily correctly at all um but I knew if I didn't have Nick Cave in the book nobody would take it seriously he you know even 20 years ago when I embarked on it it was a given that I had to have Nick Cave I had to have Vander and Young I had to have Nick Cave um yeah 
So I started, you know, I went through his Australian publicist who put me on to his British, his London-based management company. And, oh, my God, his assistant did everything in her power to just to put me off, put me off, put me off. And finally I said, I am coming to London. I have three other interviews lined up with songwriters there. I will not leave until I've interviewed Nick. I cannot not interview Nick. You've got to understand I will be pilloried. I will be stoned and tarred and feathered if I don't interview Nick. You have to give me Nick. I will travel to the ends of the earth. I will go to him. Please give me Nick. So she went, all right, you can drive down to his place. You can have one hour. So I drove down to Hove, which is next to Brighton in, in the south of England, and um I turned up at the front door of his house. And, you know, when I think about that now, and it was a beautiful house, I think about it now and I think how poignant it was because his, his wife was there taking his twin, their twin sons out. And they were, they were little boys. And his wife Susie is just so beautiful. And he just said, okay, darling, see you later. I'm going to take Debbie around to the office. And his office was just a little walk around the corner in a flat that he rented that was absolutely, I won't say squalid, but definitely disheveled and unkempt and, um, yeah, messy. Let's just say when I needed to use the bathroom, it was like, oh, okay. And um, it wasn't disgusting. It was just not cleaned. Um, but he was, he was, he was, that's where he had his, he had a desk and he had a bookshelf behind the desk. And we sat there Um. And we sort of did the interview between that desk and his piano. And um, we sat there at his desk and he had various music books behind him and he pointed to Paul Zollo's Songwriters on Songwriting and he said, is what you're doing like that? Is it like this book? And I said, it's exactly what I'm doing. He said, I thought so. And I've always wanted to do this interview and I'm sorry if you got a hard time about it. And so, um, so we started and I found him really engaging and quite funny and very um, respectful of the fact that I had done my research very thoroughly, that I was very honest with him, that I studied him. So I didn't come to him with all those fawning, preconceived points of view that the fans who, who you know, would fall at his feet, sit at his knees, begging for 15 minutes of his time did. And after an hour, his assistant called and he said, we're fine, darling, leave us alone. And she called again another hour later. And he said, we're fine. It's great. Debbie's great. And, you know, I had three hours with him and he signed the release form. Um, we, we walked off back to his house and then I got in my car and off I went thinking that was really good. <laughs> That was a really good interview. I'm so glad the tape recorder, because I was still using a proper cassette tape recorder in the day. I'm so glad it didn't play up. Everything's recorded, few. And um, and I kept in touch with him and did some fact-checking with him. And he'd always sign his email, Love Nick. And, um, and, you know, he got the book and he thanked me for it. And then over time, we weren't in touch. The last time I think I got an email was when he changed his email address and he sent a broad email out to all, everyone on his list. Um, and, of course, his life has taken some terribly, um, both terribly, deeply tragic turns and also beautifully inspired and, and honest turns. And I'm, 
I haven't kept up with his music, but I am going to see him in Los Angeles in October. Um, I missed out on seeing him in Sydney. He played, he did three shows at the Sydney Opera House last year and you couldn't get a ticket for love or money. Um, and I've only ever seen him live once. I went to see him in concert in Sydney sometime after I'd interviewed him for the book. Um, so I'm intrigued. Um, he's had films come out. He's he's searingly honest about his creative process as it relates to the events of his life. Whether or not he is still irascible and difficult to interview for other people, I don't know. Um, but for me, it was one of the greatest experiences of doing the book. It was just great. Well, you interviewed him a number of years ago, and like you mentioned, he's had some major tragedies. Um, it gives more fuel, I guess, to his dark lyrics, but I always feel like there's an undertone of hopefulness in a lot of his songs. Um, but was there ever a temptation to kind of write follow-ups to the ends of the chapters? Because a lot has happened, not just to Nick, but other people that you've interviewed. In fact, some of them are no longer with us. No. The short answer is actually no, um, because I think the interviews are what they are. And to follow up with them now, really, they just need to be new interviews. Because um, a lot of them, 18 to 20 years on, have possibly even changed their viewpoints on songwriting. So that's why every interview has a date and a place on it, where the interview took place and when, to put it in historical context. Um, the other thing is that, you know, people, there was a time not that long ago, about three years ago, where there was a publisher in Sydney very interested in reissuing it with four new chapters. They also wanted me to take Rolf Harris out. So I was about to embark on um, the very aspirational uh, task of trying to get Barry Gibb and to fit Barry Gibb into that space where Rolf Harris would have been, Rolf Harris having just recently died. And a lot of Americans don't know who he is, but he he was an Australian entertainer, songwriter and art painter and entertainer who went to the UK and became incredibly famous there, was commissioned to port, paint portraits of the Queen three times, one, you know, was awarded an OBE, was awarded everything you can be awarded. And then unfortunately was found guilty of some horrible crimes and, um, and imprisoned in the UK as a very elderly man 10 years after I'd met him. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, and stripped of all his awards, all his awards in the UK and Australia, hmm. very much in that cancel culture sort of way. Well, right. he did horrible crime, so let's cancel out all the good work he did. And I don't believe in that. I and agree I, ad you. I address that in my new forward. And I also address the fact that my interview with him is part of the art of this book and to cancel his interview cancels out my work as well. But also it would muck up the indexes and it would just muck up everything. But when I was looking at, you know, doing four new interviews and putting it out again that way, um, I wanted to get Barry Gibb, I wanted to get Keith Urban um, and a couple of other songwriters in Australia who aren't as well known internationally but, you know, would deserve to be in there. But it just that that the contract that was offered to me at the time was ridiculous and I wasn't going to go ahead with it. So that kind of got put to bed. And so when it came to doing it this time, for me, it was more about I just want to get it back out there. People have been asking for this book for years. And um, so I'm just going to reprint it, put in a new forward, 
make a couple of tiny corrections that a lot of people won't have noticed but have been bothering me, which can be done on the PDF, and then just get it out there so that wherever you are in the world, go onto your local Amazon website or whatever your local online bookstore is, and you can buy it or you can buy the ebook. Um, and so the short answer is no. And, and often in Australia, people would go, well, you left out this one and you left out that one. And what about this younger one and this younger one? And I go, someone else can do that now. Because it was like giving birth. You've done, look, you've done a lot of books and you've made it, but you know when you made that film. Right. It's like you've done it. It's mm-hmm. you'll, you'll be proud of it for the rest of your life. But it was like giving birth and you know, the last thing you feel like doing necessarily is doing it again or this, you'd want to do something different, you know. Um, it stands as a piece of work which you honour and believe in for the rest of your life. So that's how I feel about Songwriters Speak. There are other books I want to write and I nobody else in all these years back in Australia or New Zealand has done a book of interviews with songwriters. So probably people looked at it and went, oh, God, how did she do that? That's hard. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned how Nick Cave actually accommodated you for three hours, which is fantastic. And then Terry Britton, who co-wrote What's Love Got to Do With It. He also went above and beyond. There's a little story about how he drove through his neighborhood with you in the passenger seat and gave you a, a little tour. So uh, who were some of your favorites to interview? And did anyone else go above and beyond like that? Well, I want to single. I want to mention a few that I really enjoyed. And in terms of going beyond, um, Graham Connors is a songwriter not particularly known outside Australia. He's probably the songwriter's songwriter in country music in Australia. So whenever other artists want to co-write, they'll call Graham Connors. And he lives in a place called Mackay in far north Queensland, um, very tropical. And a lot of his songs on his first um, album North or his first breakthrough album North um, were about, you know, leaving Sydney and going home to the tropics and um, and it really resonated with audiences and made him a country star. And to the, and that was in the eight, late 80s and to this day he is still highly awarded and highly sought after to write songs with. He, he speaks beautifully and brilliantly about his creative process and he's just charming and lovely. And I flew to Mackay to do the interview and um, they accommodated me and then they loaned me their ute, their utility truck, so that I could drive a little further north and go to a place called Airlie Beach, which is a very famous spot on um, the, the far north Queensland coast and take a boat, a day trip out to Hamilton Island and Whitehaven Beach, which was spots on the Whit Sundays, on spots I'd always wanted to see. And they loaded, they loaned me their ute for for a couple of days, wow. and um, I I've stayed friends with with Graham and his wife Lynn, and I I really treasure that because, you know, I travelled a lot to do the interviews, whether it was just domestically around Australia or overseas to the UK and to America, and people were so welcoming and kind about that. I mean, Ross Wilson, who um, has had two monumental bands in Australia, the first being Daddy Cool, and his biggest hit for Daddy Cool was Eagle Rock, which inspired Elton John's Crocodile Rock. Oh, really? And that's a, that's a fact. Um, uh, and then his second group, Mondo Rock, 
in the 80s, which um, which had a lot of big hits. And then Ross goes on. He To this day, he's still a big, a, a well-known, great artist in Australia. And I was sitting in, with Ross in his back courtyard, backyard, doing this interview on a lovely sunny Melbourne day on my old cassette tape recorder, and the tape was getting chewed up by my recorder. Oh, no. And Ross, being a seasoned musician and producer, took my tape, took it inside, spliced it, fixed it, and on we went, wow. which I love. I really <laughs> love that. And then, and then, just in terms of favorite interviews, look, Tim Finn, who founded Split Ends, and then of course his little brother Neil Finn joined Split Ends and went on and. Neil founded Crowded House, which Tim later on joined for a while, and to this, and then they've recorded albums, just the two of them together. And to this day, they're considered probably the greatest musical exports from New Zealand and world acclaimed. Tim just speaks like a poet laureate. Everything he says is quotable. Every, well, everything he said to me was quotable. I remember we did the interview in two parts, one at a cafe in Sydney and then a, a couple of months later in Auckland at his home. We finished it. And I, every, every, I just hung on every word. Everything he said, I was like, I hope this is recording well. That's going to go in the chapter. That's going to go in the chapter. I just, I just loved speaking to Tim Finn. And speaking of interviews in two parts, I'm going to pause here. Check back real soon for part two when Debbie talks about songs written and or performed by Nick Cave, ACDC, and Tina Turner. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>